1: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tiboldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The wellness community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Well, in my travels across the country as the CEO of the Cancer Support Community, I have the opportunity to meet a lot of people whose lives have been impacted by cancer. Uh, On a recent trip to Denver, I met Nancy Sharp. Once I heard her story, uh, as she says it, of, of, of love, of loss, and bold living, I knew I had to bring her on the show so that you could meet her too. Nancy is a motivational speaker and expert on change through bold living. She is the award-winning author of the memoir, Both Both Sides Now, A True Story of Love, Loss, and Bold Living, and the children's book, Because the Sky is Everywhere. Nancy is passionate about helping individuals and organizations move beyond stuckness, disappointment, and loss of all kinds towards growth and positive change. Nancy's writing has appeared in the Huffington Post, Dr. Oz, The Good Life, Woman's Day, *Moore*, Marie Claire, Self, National Geographic Traveler, Stand Up to (laughs) Cancer, And numerous other media. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Nancy, um, can you tell our listeners in brief what your memoir, Both Sides Now, A True Story of Love, Loss, and Bold Living is about? Let's start there.
2: Yes. Yes. Well, the book hinges on the day that I became a mother, May 20th, 2001. Uh, I delivered twins. Uh, my daughter, Rebecca, and my son, Casey, were born, and on that very same day, only hours later, while, of course, I was still resting from my uh, from birthing my children, my husband, Brett, received a horrendous call from his neuro-oncologist at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital letting him know that the routine MRI he'd taken a few days prior, the one of his brain that had been clear for two years, was back and the cancer had spread everywhere. So uh, literally, it was a day where life and death virtually collided. I mean, imagine having to hold the joy of parenthood and the absolute terror of, of, of knowing at that point that my husband was almost certainly going to die from a disease that we had hoped he would, he would live through. Yeah. And so the book then goes on to tell our story, and uh, it, it, it follows us through Brett's death a few years after that day, when the kids were two and a half years old, I was 37, and he was just a few months shy of his 40th birthday. I stayed put in New York City again, where we were living at the time, because I really couldn't see straight at first. But mm-hmm. over time, I began to feel increasingly worn down by uh, the pace of New York, and of course, everything that had happened. And I started to feel this visceral uh, pull to to move my life somewhere else. I literally Mm -hmm. felt that after almost a decade of caregiving and the hard months and early years of mourning that followed Brett's death, I needed to do something different. And that's Mm -hmm. how I ended up moving to Colorado to make a fresh start in 2006. So the book, the final section of the book uh, takes my children and me to Colorado, where we look out onto the mountains and to the wide open world and begin to build a different kind of a life
1: and we'll get to that move a little later in the show and talk more about uh, more about that I want to stay on the book for a minute Nancy the book is structured uh, to me it's really structured in an interesting way as a series of sort of short chapters it feels to me like you were showing us a a photo album you know with each page containing a snapshot and you telling the story of each picture why did you think that that would be the the best way to tell your story Uh,
2: well, that's a great question, because when I originally started to write the memoir, I wrote it in the only way I knew how, which was in a very linear, chronological, traditional fashion. I started at the beginning. There were a lot of details. There were a lot of words on the page. And after many, many months of writing, I realized I I was feeling suffocated by... By, by everything I had written on the page, it was sort of too much, too intense. And I realized that if I was feeling like this, imagine how my readers would feel. Mm-hmm. So it took a while to, to figure out the best form for the book, but uh, in time I saw that I needed white space to render the experience so that, um, I would have breathing space on the page and that my readers would also have that breathing space. So some chapters are really as as little as a sentence. And, you know, some of the best feedback I get about the book, Kim, is, is from readers who say your story was my story. Because mm-hmm. I didn't write the book because I felt I had this burning desire to tell my story. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book to make sense of my experience, to integrate it, because it was a chaotic, long, tumultuous experience, and I needed to integrate it into one whole piece. But I also felt that I had something to say that could really um, serve other people who were experiencing
1: loss. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you, Nancy, take us back, tell our listeners a little bit about Brett, about Brett's uh, initial initial diagnosis and what kind of cancer yes. he had, and really what the the prognosis was that brought you to that day of that terrible news. Yeah, well, you know, the whole thing
2: started with hiccuping and burping. Yeah, you know, my husband was a very funny guy. He really had never been sick in his life with anything more serious than a head cold. Mm-hmm. And one day, I don't remember which day he just started hiccuping and burping. And it was funny at first. He cracked a lot of jokes about it until he couldn't stop. Well, one symptom led to others and others and others. And of course, you know, over, the, over a period of many, uh, about six or seven months, he began to develop other symptoms as well. Stomach aches, he was losing a lot of weight. I actually thought he was depressed because he had become increasingly withdrawn and had lost a good amount of weight Uh, and I actually scheduled a therapy appointment for him thinking he just was under a lot of pressure with his job he had a high-profile job at Time Warner he was working with like trailblazers like Walter Isaacson on the internet and you know he didn't It it, kind of came to a crushing head um, when he couldn't turn his head without getting blinding headaches. And Mm. then he confessed to me in a moment of really sheer terror on his part that he had blacked out a couple times the previous few weeks on some business trips. Mm. So I actually called his therapist, which I guess in those days... (laughs) It's amazing. The therapist took my call, but I was really alarmed. I mean, he was so sick and terrified, he really couldn't advocate for himself. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that moment, as though it was yesterday, just really sounding the alarm bell that there was something physically wrong with him. This was not depression. Mm-hmm. He made a call mm-hmm. to a neuro-oncologist, at Columbia Presbyterian, who had him come in the very next morning, did an MRI. And, of course, that was it. So his his diagnosis, and he was in surgery a week later. So he had a medulla blastoma, which is the kind a kind of brain tumor that typically affects children ages 5 and under. Yeah. Now, it was rare at the time for adults to be diagnosed with a medulla. I don't know. I know that there have been other adults since Brett who were diagnosed. A lot of people ask me, well, did he have it as a child, and did it lay down dormant all those years I don't think so I think it just emerged later in life Um, so but he was 32 when he was diagnosed and because a good percentage of kids with medullas they live there was really no way to know his progress his prognosis you know, he had he had as much, he had the surgery, of course, he had to learn to walk again because the tumor was by the brainstem, which controls balance. And um, he had as much radiation as they could possibly give someone and chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And then everything seemed okay. And the thing about his disease is that there was so much uncertainty because they really, the the, the oncologist really hadn't seen too many, they, he was sort of an anomaly. And so you had neuro-oncologists from around the country putting their heads together, trying to determine the best course of action. And uh, he, he really had fantastic care and he had really terrific quality of life until the time the kids were born. And as I said, we had really hoped that he was going to be okay because he had absolutely no physical signs of cancer Mm. until Mm. that MRI Mm. came back on the day the kids were born. And from that day forward, things really fell apart. I mean, I Mm. was hearing from his neuro-oncologist at the time, you know, probably a 5% chance of survival. I mean, imagine I've got two-month-old twins at home. It was a horrendous, horrendous period of my life.
1: Nancy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um, I want to ask you, we've only got a couple minutes till our first break here, but um, what what made you guys make the decision to pursue a family knowing that he had been ill? Can you just take a minute to walk us through that process and the discussion between the two of you during that time? Yes, for
2: sure. You know, so again...
0: uh,
2: this is having the decision to have children was definitely a bold decision, mm-hmm. but we thought he was going to be okay. He mm-hmm. had no, no physical signs of cancer. You know, mm-hmm. life was happening all around us. We're in our mid thirties po- mean, uh, at that point. I mean, early thirties for me at that And all of our friends are having children and we're doing well in our careers. And, you know, there was just no way to know what was going to happen with him. I knew that he really wanted to have children. He wanted to be a father in the worst way. I was very frightened, and I remember actually one Thanksgiving we were having a conversation with his uncle, who happens to be a pediatric oncologist at Stanford uh, University. And we asked him what we thought he should do. And he said to us, the only proof of cure is life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really reflected on those words, and that mm-hmm. was true, because I started to think about the crazy odds of anything happen, right? I mean, you could walk into a bus in New York City
3: sure. And, sure.
2: and get killed. I mean, I just started to think about the odds, and, and I guess, so there was, there was that realization, and... There was a deep part of me that just wanted him to be cured. And mm-hmm. I, I think I made that my narrative, that he was going to be okay. I
1: had to yeah. do that in order to go forward. Yeah, yeah. Nancy, let us uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We have so much to discuss uh, with you. We're talking with Nancy Sharp, author of Both Sides Now, A True Story of Love, Loss, and Bold Living. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope.
3: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you of Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
2: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azai, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer
3: every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Amgen insight in Lily Oncology, and PharmaCyclics, and Janssen Biotech. I'm your host, Kim Tevoldo. We're talking today with award-winning author and motivational speaker, Nancy Sharp. Um, Nancy, so after your radiation and chemotherapy, you mentioned earlier, all signs of your husband's uh, cancer were gone. In the book, you share stories right. of trips to, to London and Denver, uh, time you spent with friends, the decision to start a family. I just want to read a quote from the book uh, for a minute, if that's okay. Um, sure. our listeners a sense of that um, you say uh, "Quote: every three months you went for a routine MRI which continued to show no sign of disease with each successive test behind you we emigrated toward life meditating to Springsteen's land of hope and dreams helped too well tomorrow there will be sunshine and all this darkness passed time passed like mm-hmm. this both of us going about our lives healing on our own dreaming together you are feeling so good that in our minds you, become, you became cured It was subtle at first, the signs evident by the fullness of your days. We made you cured. None of the doctors use such language, but I wouldn't remember this. The precise wording was that you were being treated with curative intent, quite different uh, reality than pronouncing you cancer-free. And then you add, Nancy, the only proof of cure, as you mentioned earlier, is life. It was Uncle Harvey who spoke the words while at your parents' house for Thanksgiving. We were just beginning to think about starting a family Life is the only antidote to death, he was saying. Seven simple words in a new philosophy for living. Here was a certainty uh, we could grasp. Um, You know, Nancy, I think Shakespeare had it right when he wrote, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of uh, in your philosophy. Because mm. on that day when you delivered those twin babies, at the moment of overwhelming joy and happiness, your world was flipped upside down, as you told us, and as Dr. It called, really was. To say that the MRI showed, yeah, it, showed uh, you know, disease activity. It really was just
2: terrible. I, it, it was just hard to know, and I had so many raging hormones, and you know, my babies were born premature, also, because that can happen mm. sometimes with twins. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. was a, sure. it was just. You know I, I believed, and I, I I knew they were going to be okay ultimately. I mean, I guess I had to believe mm-hmm. that, especially in light of of what Brett had experienced, but you know, they were mm-hmm. in one hospital for the first five weeks, gaining weight basically, and he was in others, getting ready for a double stem cell transplant.
1: Mm. Just an unbelievable sort of dichotomy of experiences, trying to reconcile: Well, you
2: know, and this is the interesting opposite for acts, your you know, too.
1: happening: Go ahead. what was that?
2: I was going to say just that I didn't such remember
1: events happening at the same time. You know. Yes,
2: you know it was so traumatic. I did not remember that it happened on the same day until it came time to write my book, and it was really only after a year and a half or so after I had happened upon this new structure. I was pursuing my my master's of uh, fine arts in creative nonfiction. And I was working on this book as my thesis. And I remember saying to my first mentor, yeah, it happened around the same time. I I can't quite remember. She said, well, that's a really important point. I think that you need to check. So I had to get the medical records, and I called Brett's neuro-oncologist, who I was friendly with, three separate times to make sure that Everything happened on the same day because it was I couldn't remember. And such is the frailty of memory when there's real trauma.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You, Nancy, you share uh, in the book that for a long time, you and Brett lived in, quote, disparate realities. Was mm-hmm. the rift was the rift clear to you at the time or is it something that you came to understand? Like, yes. Explain Explain that phrase disparate realities to us.
2: Well, he was doing everything he could to put himself in survival mode, whereas I lived with an extraordinary level, high degree of premature anticipatory grief. You know, even as I tried to make it my reality and to make it my narrative that he was going to be okay... That did not negate the terrors that I had, the nightmares that I had of burying him so many times in my dreams. He could not really own his cancer identity, and I found that very difficult. He just couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't go there. Um, you know, there wasn't a, a wristband or a, a color for brain cancer, but he, he, he really was doing everything he could to just... Um, be husbandly, to take care of his family. You know, it was enough for him to simply go to work and to do his job and then to come home. And that was really all he could do. It mm-hmm. was not until, um, it really was not until uh, after the kids were born that I think he he accepted that he was eventually going to die from this mm-hmm. disease. And that was mm-hmm. very, very difficult. You know, my, my, his parents also struggled a lot. My mother-in-law in particular, and I do write about this in the book, was filled with denial because she just couldn't go there. It was too painful, mm-hmm. and it caused a lot of friction between us because we would be mm-hmm. sitting at an oncologist meeting, and she would hear one thing. And I would hear reality or what I interpreted Mm -hmm. to be reality. And Mm -hmm. she, it's all going to be good. It's all going to be good. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was what she needed for her own survival, just as he did. And what Mm -hmm. I came to realize later after he died, you know, after I had begun to sort of integrate the loss is that we
1: go where we need to go. You know, in the book, Nancy, after Brett dies, you take us with you through the experience of loss and grief. And mm-hmm. one of the things you describe is feeling paralyzed, feeling frozen. So, to t- take our yeah. listeners down the path of this sort of what I'll refer to as a radical move to Denver from New York City with two little kids, um, you know, did that partially come from wanting to try to break free fr- from that paralysis just to change your surroundings? Oh,
2: absolutely. I felt completely stuck. Mm-hmm. I felt as though my life in New York City was synonymous with Brett. It really mm-hmm. was because mm-hmm. we had been we had been together, well, like maybe 15 months and then we were married almost 11 years. It just it felt like the the ghost of all of our experiences and you have to remember most of our marriage was filled with sickness. We had more sick years than healthy years because he was diagnosed about 4 years into our marriage. Mm-hmm. So I I felt as though I just couldn't I couldn't breathe properly there you know and New York City is a really wonderful exciting place but it can also be downright exhausting and all I felt Kim after you know this decade as I said of of, of caregiving and living with this premature grief and stress and then and then actually mourning his death all I felt was exhausted so I thought. I thought, really, I was going to suffocate if I stayed in New York City. You know, I was very fortunate that even though I had been consulting on my own for a number of years, you know, we didn't have life insurance because Brett was diagnosed before we had kids. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of great professional experiences um, in public relations and a, uh, a uh, company that I had worked at in, earlier in my career, Ketchum, they had followed our story. And many of them had come to the funeral, and they offered me a part-time position that would pay health health benefits, mm-hmm. and it would be good for them. Well, I was really in over my head, because I had dissociation, which I didn't really understand how traumatic that was, but I distinctly remember in those, those you know, it's really that whole first year after he died, I would be looking at my boss and seeing two of her in the same chair. Mm-hmm. So... It took a good year and a half or so to realize I was done with this life. I was mm-hmm. done with the New York. I needed to make a change. Um, you know, my college roommate lived in Colorado, and every time I would come visit her, and Brett and I would visit her, we just fell in love with the open sky, the sunshine, the sunshine. And the expansiveness of the landscape. You know, New York is like, it's a very, it's exciting, but it's very tense. It's very pressured and vast paced. Yes. I needed to just slow life down and to figure things out. So obviously, you know, my kids were going into kindergarten. It was a perfect time to make that kind of a life transition. And mm-hmm. so we came. And, and that sense of adventure and newness was absolutely intoxicating after having felt stuck for so many
1: years. So, Nancy, we've only got a couple of minutes till our break here. But um, what did your friends and family think? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: when you them they were well, and of um, Yeah, I told my father first,
2: and I, told, I asked my dad to break it to my mom, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I have to say Brett's mother was also, Brett's father unfortunately had died a year after he did, but mm-hmm. um, they were pretty nervous, they were all pretty nervous, but they were also very supportive, and this is what I said. You know, what is the worst thing that can happen? I'll go, it doesn't work out. I'll I'm move out. back or I'll try okay. something, something else. else. It's going yeah. to be okay.
1: Now we, I had uh, to just
2: keep stepping forward. That yeah. was the most important thing is
1: I, I couldn't stay stuck. I needed to move forward. Yeah. Now we, we're, we're, uh, we're getting up on our break here, um, Nancy, but I just sure. I want to set the stage. For our next segment, for our listeners, we have a little bit of a cliffhanger for them. Um, We certainly know, Nancy, you're a champion of bold living. Um, And if this is not an example of bold living, I don't know what is. But after making the move to Denver, you saw a young widower featured in an article uh, listing Denver's most eligible bachelors. And not only did you email him, but when you didn't get a response, you emailed him again. So we're we're going to leave that cliffhanger there. Uh, we're going to take a uh, we're going to move up here on uh, a quick break, and then Nancy's going to tell us uh, a little bit about that next uh, that next part of the chapter uh, in her story. We're talking today with uh, Nancy Sharp. She's a motivational speaker and expert on change through bold living. Uh, she is the award-winning author of the memoir Both Sides Now: A True Story of Love lost in bold living and also the children's book because the sky is everywhere i had the great pleasure of meeting nancy in denver uh this summer and after hearing her story and and uh learning about her book i knew we had to have her come on to frankly speaking about cancer so uh, we're going to take a quick break here on frankly speaking about cancer we've got a lot more to discuss with nancy and we want to hear about this eligible bachelor so don't go away we'll be right back
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Cancer
3: Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support MealTrain sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1000 new breast cancer specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com/mmt and enter the code MagnoliaB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene, Azai, and Gilead Sciences. We're having a great conversation today with award-winning author Nancy Sharp. Nancy is also a motivational speaker and expert on change through bold uh, living. Um, Nancy, I, I was intrigued by um, the title of your book, Both Sides Now. Tell me a little bit about that title. Of course, I always hum the song in my head when I hear it, but tell us about that. That's the title. exactly where,
2: yes, that's exactly ah. where it came from. Ah, that beautiful good, Joni good. Mitchell song, right? Mm-hmm. Both Sides Now. Um, but, you know, I actually, when Brett was dying, meaning we knew he was going to die, but. Hospice was at home, and it was a few months before he really couldn't go out of the house. We went to the movies one night, and we saw the movie Love, Actually. Mm -hmm. It had been a good day, and so I wanted to have some sense of normalcy. And in the movie, which is just a montage of different love vignettes, the song plays both sides now. And of course I had heard the song before, but... I heard it in a new way sitting there with him at that theater knowing he was going to die because, you know, here we had babies at the house and all of a sudden the impact and the words and the metaphor of having to hold everything at once really resonated for me. And so that really is my story is what is it like when you have to hold both joy and love as well as sorrow and death all at once. And even though my story might feel extreme because the events, I mean, they're pretty extreme, life and death, basically on the yeah. same day, yeah. but we all have to hold those kinds of dualities, and we have to learn to hold the paradoxes of, of, of both sides now almost all the time. I mean, this is yeah. how, this has been the greatest gift for me, is embracing that sort of philosophy, which I call being in the gray, because once you learn that you have to hold everything at once, you have to figure out a different way to see.
1: So, Nancy, I want to pick up on our narrative that we left at the last segment, and I want us to tell you about you emailing this, uh, one of Denver's most eligible bachelors. Take us there. Yes,
2: I certainly did. Well, it was about eight and a half months after I'd moved to Denver. My my sweet twins were in kindergarten, and I was reading the newspaper and reading about Steve Saunders, who happened to be a, a newscaster for the ABC TV affiliate, who had been was being featured in a local magazine's Best of Singles issue, and of course they were saying in the paper that you know, he was a local celebrity, but I didn't know it because I just moved to Denver, and they were talking about in the paper how he had also been widowed with two children. His wife had died of pancreatic cancer actually the year before Brett, when his boys were 10 and 11 years old. So, I I did not know who this Steve Saunders was. I turned on the news and I thought he was really handsome. And in the spirit of boldness and adventure, I went out and I got the magazine where he was featured. And I decided to send him an email and a photo because what did I have to lose? Well, as you said, he didn't respond at first, and it was a really good photo. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, then I started to think, a couple weeks passed, and I started to think, well, maybe the email went to spam. Because who really gets emails addressed to steve at 5280singles.com? So I decided to be bold and resend the same photo and the same email, but this time I copied his work address. And that was a fantastic decision because he responded within the hour. And he was profusely apologetic for not having gotten back to me. But it turned out, even though he was in the public eye, he was terribly shy. And it was only Mm -hmm. now that his boys were teenagers They wanted dad out of the house and he was ready to get back out there again. So, amid all crazy Hollywood odds, we wound up getting married and blending our families. We just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. And, you know, the kids are my twins were five, almost six when they met Steve. They're now 17, and his boys are 26 and 27. So, you know, tell us about that. Yeah, tell us about blending.
1: The, the two families, I you know, you've got these kids that are pretty different in their ages. I know you're Jewish, he's Catholic. Very of, different. You know. Yeah, what was it like bringing your families together?
2: It was very challenging. Um, mm-hmm. And it was challenging in ways I didn't expect. You know, my son Casey in particular was hungry, hungry, hungry for a father figure in his life. And at first, he was so overjoyed and delighted with Steve and with his two older brothers. But the moment that we cohabited, you know, he he became, um, he was acting out, and it turned out that he was having a hard time with this because he, felt like the man of the house, even though he was obviously quite mm-hmm. little. And suddenly, when I married Steve and Ryan and Dylan moved into the house, who were older, he felt very displaced. And, mm-hmm. I, and, you know, I took him to therapy, and, you know, it came out that he was feeling as though he couldn't really love Steve if it meant not loving Brett, his real dad, mm-hmm. his first dad. Mm-hmm. So it was complicated in ways that... Um, you know, I think are only suggestive when you've had losses on both sides. You know, for me, Ryan and Dylan were 14 and 15 when I met them. They had very clear memories of their mom. In no way would I ever try to replace their mom. But um, I did feel like I wanted to be a mother figure to them. And Mm -hmm. it just, it, it was bumpy. I mean, I have to be honest. It was, it was bumpy, and I got my toe stepped on a few times, and my feelings hurt. And 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 I think that it was also tricky because my kids were so young, and they, you know, whereas Steve could be a parent to them, and and you know, just to be to be a parent to them, I really couldn't be the same level of parent. Mm-hmm. to Ryan and Dylan, because they weren't receptive to it. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And their needs were quite different was, right at that age. Were Very, very. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, I mean, I didn't really get the, you're not my mother, don't tell me what to do. Right, right. But... I got it I got it in the silent treatment I got it in yeah. the head rolls I got it in different ways. It's mm-hmm. tricky. It was just tricky. Yeah. And you know, I think Steve and I also processed very differently, I have to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think he felt a tremendous amount of guilt. I don't know why, but you know, again, sort of we go where we need to go and I think he just it, it was it was I think it was harder for his boys when we got married, maybe than it was for my
1: kids just because they were older. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nancy, while we're on the subject of kids, um, tell our listeners about your... Uh, Your children's uh, book, Uh, Because the Sky is Everywhere. First of all, tell us about the title. I love love the title, but what inspired that? The
2: title, Because the Sky is Everywhere, is drawn from a real conversation that I had with Casey and Rebecca in the car Mm. uh, just a few months after Brett had died. They were three years old. Now, they had not gone to his funeral. It would have been just too traumatic. Mm -hmm. But a child psychiatrist who I was taking Casey to at the time recommended that we do a drive-by of a cemetery. Cemetery at some point and just put it out there and see what comes back. So we were in Connecticut going to visit my parents, and we passed an old cemetery in Easton, Connecticut. And I said, oh, look, there's a cemetery. And Rebecca asked if that's where Daddy was. And Casey replied, no, Rebecca, Daddy is in the sky. And I remember thinking, where on earth did he come up with that language? Because no Mm -hmm. one had ever really used that before. And Rebecca said, Mommy, is the sky back that way? Meaning New York City, where we lived at the time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Casey said, no, Rebecca, the sky is everywhere. And I knew in that Mm. moment that they were gonna be okay because well he really had figured something out all on his Mm. own that even though their dad wasn't physically with them anymore, Mm -hmm. his love was everywhere. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So because the sky is everywhere is a book I actually wrote before both sides now, but I had to put it aside because The message wasn't quite right earlier on and the moment wasn't right. And, um, you know, it's just a very sweet, hopeful, gentle book that is, I'm very pleased that it's become a, a really lovely resource for schools, for psychologists, for hospitals, for hospices, for grief camps, And I have both an English version and an English-Spanish version. And I have to say, in our experiences... I had a hard time. My kids were so little when their dad died. I had a hard time finding books that really spoke to them. There are, mm-hmm. there are the pantheon of literate grief books for kids. Mm-hmm. Freddy the Falling mm-hmm. Leaf, Robbie the Mouse. Well, my kids really couldn't relate to those books because the, the main characters are inanimate objects. They're leaves mm-hmm. and mouses, and they really wanted to read about um, a family like theirs because they didn't know anybody else who had lost their daddy at this young age.
1: And so the book is targeted, Nancy, towards families who've had, had that kind of loss of children at a yes. young age?
2: Yes. Yes. Like between 3 and 11 years old, I would say, are good ages for the book. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's really mm-hmm. lovely because a lot of um, camps are using the book. Um, and they're doing a lot of play therapy with it. In fact, we had a wonderful event in Denver that I helped to coordinate where several hospices came together, and we invited children and their families to come and to paint a collective sky of remembrance because it's just a lovely metaphor. Um, And, it's you know, death is so abstract for kids, especially young children, and to be able to get a feeling that... Even though you know your your loved person isn't there mm-hmm. anymore, that his or her love or their
1: love is Present. is a part so, of you is yeah. so huge for kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, frankly, speaking about cancer. We're talking to uh, Nancy Sharp about uh, about love, about loss, about bold living. Ah. Our episode today is brought to you in part by uh, Agios, Helson, and Janssen Oncology. We've got more uh, to discuss with Nancy, including bringing us up to speed to what Nancy is working on uh, today and how she continues to use her own experience to do outreach to so many people uh, across the country. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Thiebeldow. We're gonna take a quick break, but we've got more uh, coming up. So don't go away, we'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company Azi are committed to human healthcare, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
3: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices.
0: a global network of education and hope.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Our episode today is brought to you in part by Pharma, Taiho Oncology, and Takeda Oncology. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. We're having uh, an incredible conversation with author uh, Nancy Sharp. Um, So, Nancy, I I feel like we've gone a little bit sort of chronologically um, through this experience and and uh, and, and and through mm-hmm. your book and I I want to bring us to today a little bit uh, I know that okay. You continue. I don't know if you're working on another book. I know that you are out there quite a bit. I am um, speaking, doing programs. Uh, as you talked about the the camp program with children, I know you're doing significant number of programs on resilience. Um, tell our listeners what you're working on now, and maybe some things if somebody, if a listener has just been through a loss, been through grief. Um, some of the things you're working on to help folks through that process.
2: Sure. So, uh, you know. When my first book, Both Sides Now, came out, I started to get a lot of invitations to come and to share my story. And I really liked it, actually, because mm. it felt real and genuine and authentic, and I felt as though I was sharing a very powerful human experience. And uh, so I have been developing both keynotes and interactive workshops over the past several years about resilience, which, quite frankly, is the bigger part of the story. Um, you know, grief takes a long time to move through, and I am of the mindset you don't get over it, you learn to move through it. Mm-hmm. But as you're moving through it, you really have to summon a lot of resilience because life is filled with uncertainty. There are always going to be losses of all kinds. So I speak to many different businesses, corporate uh, groups as well as associations and nonprofits about the road to resilience, strategies that participants can put into place right away to help them build and sustain greater resilience so that they can stand sturdy amongst challenges in business and life, quite frankly. So in terms of specific strategies, well, I think you know one of the most important telling things that people can do is, especially if you are feeling maybe the way I did after a loss, which was very st- and trapped when I was in New York, and also because it was a lengthy caregiving situation, I had to ask myself, where do I feel challenged? Where do I feel stuck? Where am I feeling frustrated? And that is really, a, can be a critical catalyst because when we become acutely self-aware of what's holding us back, only then can we begin to um, identify what we need to do
1: to to transcend that challenge.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So, Nancy, your book, Both Sides Now, what do you hope readers will take away from that book?
2: I hope readers will be able to reflect upon um, their own losses and be able to understand a different way of seeing and being, and that is this concept of being in the gray, um, which is really all about having to integrate the losses into the fabric of today, integrating the the sadness, the grief into the happiness and the joy that can still be found by living every day. It's really a, a it's it's a memoir. It's not a philosophical book, but it led me to um, to this new way of of being in the world, which really is all about. How, when we have to hold those those sweeping polarities, we can actually um, be bolder. You know, bold, I Mm -hmm, came to learn, mm -hmm. Kim, does not exist in the black and white. Bold actually exists in the gray. You know, Mm -hmm. that is what I discovered when I was able to move from New York to Colorado, which was in some ways a very definite move. But I I had to embrace that the gray of my life in Colorado, you know, my new reality as a young widowed mother of five-year-old twins could still be bold. And that, again, bold actually exists in that nuanced, expansive space of gray. And once I recognize that, I just continued to step forward in my life in big and small ways. And that's really what I want readers to take away.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what about from from the children's book because the sky is everywhere. Um, you know, your 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 kids were so young when your husband died. Um, I imagine they probably don't even remember him. Well, they have what, no have memories of him. At all. Yeah, I'm sure they were so young. What have you done to create those memories? You know, f- f- for them and how might this book be helpful to uh, to others?
2: Well. Um, what have I done to create memories for my, my children I tell a lot of stories I show pictures um, I show them some video you know the internet really was not a thing back then this was even before mm-hmm. Facebook so um, it's hard though for them It's it's still very very mm-hmm. tender and I think to some degree, they'll be processing this the whole of their lives because in some ways he has loomed large like an apparition for them. Um, but I think by telling a lot of gentle stories and jokes and and um, and making his favorite foods and honoring him on special occasions, we really keep his memory alive. In terms of what I want kids to, to experience from reading Because the Sky is Everywhere, one word, hope. I just want children to feel a sense of hope after they've had a profound loss.
1: Well, that's certainly a, a fair wish uh, uh, for others who are going through this um, uh, this yes. experience. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yes. Nancy, we're coming to the end of the show in our last minute or two. Um, any final words of advice for anyone struggling with grief and loss, anyone living, uh, listening today who might have had a recent loss or you know might be on the cusp of a loss Um, any words of advice for those listeners today
2: well I think just to be exceedingly gentle with yourself and to go where you need to go there is no right or wrong Um, and and Ultimately, to allow yourself to be in whatever space you need to be in, but also just to be honest at the same time that after a period of time, if the grief feels insurmountable, it's time to get help. And it's time mm-hmm. to realize that you can begin to step out in small, in small ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's good advice. Um, Nancy, it's been just great having you. Uh, on the Thank show you today. so much. It's been great being on the show. Wonderful. And and just to talk about your own experiences, to talk about the book, I really would encourage our listeners to visit uh, your website. It's nancysharp.net, N-A-N-C-Y-S-H-A-R-P.net, to learn more about Nancy and, and, uh, uh, and about these two wonderful uh, books. certainly would encourage our listeners to take a look at that. I just want to... Um, just want to take a moment to tell our listeners, uh, remind them about the cancer support community. We're a nonprofit organization, really a global organization, and we provide free uh, support, education, navigation, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction programs for people with all cancers at any stage of the disease. And for the family members and loved ones and and, and caregivers, we also do have uh, programs at our Centers on Grief uh, and on Loss um, and Bereavement. So I would encourage our listeners to visit the website at cancersupportcommunity.org. Again, we've got so many beautiful centers around the country where you can go. All of our services are free of charge for people with all cancers at any stage of the disease. And if you wanted to just pick up the phone right now and talk to one of our counselors, you can call 888-793-9355 if you're grabbing a pen. 888-793-9355 or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org I'm Kim Tibaldo this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer thanks for listening today until next time be well do well live well